welcome to our second part on the series we're doing called Foundations, where we're looking at uh, the life of the early church in the book of Acts and how their behavior, what they did, what it means for us today. Uh, last week, Jonathan started the series um, by setting the scene. And really, a couple of things Jonathan said last week were really insightful, and I'm going to build on those uh, in today's message. A couple of points Jonathan raised were, number one, keep it simple, and number two, love God, love people. And when Jonathan said, love God, love people, it reminded me of the song by Danny Gokey, which some of you may be aware of. If you're cool, you'll know about it. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to try and sing it. Um, but the refrain, the chorus says, um, got to keep it simple, keep it real simple, get it back down to ground zero. Jordan's nodding, nice one. Because when it all comes down to this, love God, love people. And of course, Jesus told us that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second commandment is to love your neighbour as yourself. So love God, love people is a really handy way of remembering that. So with that in mind, the scripture we're looking at today is in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 32. And to set the context, so Jesus has ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit has come down on the apostles at Pentecost. People are speaking in tongues. Miracles are happening. And followers are being added to the number of Christians in the early church. So a lot of stuff's happening. It's a very exciting, very vibrant time. So let's have a look at the scripture then. This is Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 32. And I'm reading from the NIV uh, this morning. So starting at verse 12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly, re even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered, also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. 
We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised, raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So there's a lot in those verses. But the thing that strikes me when first looking at these is things are happening. Signs and wonders are happening. Miracles are happening. A lot of stuff's going on, which we don't necessarily see. In if we look at the church then and look at the church today, like Jonathan mentioned last week, it's almost like looking at something different, looking at an exotic holiday destination that you've, you kind of look at it from a distance, you might sort of visualise it, and it's, wow, it's so different to where we are nowadays. But why is that? You know, Hebrews 12, 35 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God hasn't changed. Matthew 24, 35, and Luke 21, 33, Jesus says... Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So God hasn't changed, and his word hasn't changed in all of that time. Lizzie, could we have the slide with the, uh, the illustration, please? Thank you. So when I was preparing for this message, the first picture God kind of put into my head was this. I managed to find one on, on Google Image, which was exactly how I, how I well, had been shown by the Lord. and So you've got the ripple effect. So you've got the drop of water and you've got the ripples going outwards. Now, if we imagine that that centre focal point is the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And of course, right, at, at, right next to that would be the early church who were there at the time of the ascension and when all of these things were happening. And over the natural course of time, of course, you would expect the ripples to get weaker and weaker as time goes on. So over the years, churches, while they start with this great passion and all these miracles happening, the ripples over time fade out. You get bits of revival happening here and there along the way throughout history. But when it gets to, to nowadays, well, things tend to be a bit weaker in the, in the natural order of things. That's what you would expect to happen when you see something like this in the natural order of things. However, we don't serve a natural God. We serve a supernatural God. And Peter quotes the prophet Joel in Acts 2. And he says this. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. So in the last days, God says he will pour out his spirit, and signs and wonders will happen. Which therefore means, in the supernatural order of things, if the spirit is present at the focal point, the spirit is also present at the outer reams of that ripple effect. 
So if God's word hasn't changed, then that's true today. If God hasn't changed, and that's true today. So if God hasn't changed, and his word hasn't changed, the message of the gospel hasn't changed, what's changed? Massive questions. So I'm not going to pretend that I have the answers to all of these things. But I think there are a couple of examples that we can get from these scriptures which give us an indication of what's changed along the way. So, Lizzie, if we could have the first slide, please, with the, the first passage of scripture. I want to thank you. So I would suggest that if God hasn't changed and his word hasn't changed, then it's we as people have changed. And specifically, what we're going to look at these passages are two areas where I think we could really learn and, and just be kind of re be reminded of some of the lessons from the early church here. And it's the two areas really are passion and obedience. So if we look at the opening of this scripture here, many miraculous signs and wonders were happening. So question is here already, well, does, if miracles were happening then, do miracles still happen today? Some people say, some scholars, in fact, say, do you know what, miracles are no longer relevant. They were only relevant back then because the church was being established and so it was to promote the, the foundation of the church. So some people will say, so no, miracles don't really happen anymore. Other people would say, well, yeah, miracles do happen, but we don't really see them because people haven't got the faith to see miracles. So the question is, what's your view? Do you believe that God performs miracles today? Well, to quote um, Errol Brown, do you remember this, the singer from Hot Chocolate? He sang that song, didn't he? I believe in miracles. I'm, I'm not going to go into the rest of the song. But the opening line, I believe in miracles. Well, I do believe in miracles. Like Errol Brown, we've got the same hairstyle and we've got the same belief in miracles. So I believe in miracles. I believe God is alive and well and performing miracles in the same way. And I'll give you three very quick examples of miracles that I've seen in my own life. Number one, I was with my parents, we were dry, we, we parked our car, um, I think it was in Birmingham somewhere, and we got out of the car, and this complete stranger comes up to my dad, sees him and says, excuse me, are you Sam? And my dad's like, yeah, sorry, do I, do I know you? He's like, no, no, we, we've never met, but I saw you in my dream last night, and God told me to tell you that he loves you. How do you, how do you explain that? I'd say it's a miracle. Years ago, I went to a house church in Hemingford Abbots, a village in Cambridgeshire, and there was a guy who used to go to that church. He was a Welsh farmer called Horace. Now, Horace had never been to school, couldn't read or write, but the day he got baptised, he came out of the water and he could read the Bible that day. Couldn't read anything else, but he could read, he could read the Bible. How do you, and there was a talking point amongst the community there. So how do you explain that? I'd say it's a miracle. And for myself, I've shared this before, but I had really bad tennis elbow several years ago. And I had physio and I, and I had restricted movement. I couldn't lift anything for, for quite a while. KCC offices here. Um, Alex and Don prayed for me one evening and got home that evening. And for the first time in months, I could open my fridge with my right arm, lift up a full pint of milk, a full pint without any pain. How do you, how, after that prayer. So how do, you, how do you explain that? I'd say that's a miracle. I have actually had it come back occasionally. It flares up when I'm doing something for the church, ironically. 
It does occasionally come up. It even came up this week while I was preparing for this, for this message. So, so that's a good thing. I take that as a confirmation. Uh, so God is alive and well. And maybe you've got examples in your own life of, or, or for the people who you know where you've seen miracles happening. So, so miracles are still um, happening. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because God says he will pour out his spirit in the last days. So if, if miracles are happening and... If we can see here, it, it talks about belief here. So it says, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on them as he passed by. So crowds gathered, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Not some of them, all of them. So, so there's something really powerful going on here. So I would ask you the question this morning. It says here that people believed in the Lord. Put your hand up if you believe in the Lord. Pretty much all of us here believe in the Lord. But is that enough? James 2, verse 19 says, you believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. So what does that tell us? It tells us that belief in itself is not enough. A couple of verses before that, verse 17, James 2.17. James writes, faith without action is what? It's dead. Faith without action is dead. Not that we're saved by works, of course, we're saved by grace. But what we see here... People believed in the Lord. They didn't just sit at home and believe. They actually brought their sick into the streets. They gathered. They brought. They actually had a... Their faith was put into action. They took steps. They took steps when they had belief. You know, so many times in Scripture where we see Jesus healing people, like the, the woman who had the bleeding and she fought her way through the crowd and, and touched his, his cloak just so she could get healed. She took an action. She reached out for that healing. When the paralyzed man was lowered through the roof, his friends took action. They, they, they carried him on a stretcher to the house. They went up the roof. And when Jesus healed the guy, he says, take your mat, get up and walk. The guy actually had to take an action. So faith is accompanied by action. And as James says, faith without action is dead. So the early church here, it's, a, it's an example of not just believing, but actually taking action with that belief, putting that faith into action and doing something. Again, God saved us by his grace, not by anything that we do. But there is something to be considered in that. What are we, what are we doing with our faith? How is our belief being expressed in our lives? And when I was considering this, um, this is very much linked to the whole thing about um, of passion, so having a passionate belief. And it's, it's easy to say that you believe, but how do you display that in your life? You know, it's, passion is something which, uh, it, it comes down to, if we look at the next bits, um, thank you, where the, there's persecution happening here, 
I often find, um, we hear stories of revival happening around the world, and it's often in communities where there is persecution. Now, some of you know that I um, spent some time in China where Christians are persecuted, and it's not an easy thing to be open about your faith. And I remember when I told my dentist, who I, who, who I had there, that I was a Christian, he put his, the first thing he did was, he put his hands up, and he went, hallelujah. Now, I've never told a dentist here that I'm a Christian, but if I did, I don't think I'm going to get that response. Uh, I had a doctor who, there, who I used to, to meet for a Bible study, um, and she was a new Christian, and she wanted to really understand the Bible. And she said to me one day, Darren, it's my dream to master this book. There was a real hunger, a real appetite, a real passion. And we actually had to go into a secret room in this hospital under lock and key because she was scared of anyone knowing that she had a Bible. She could have lost her job or worse. But in those environments where there was persecution, passion often thrives. And we can see here that the apostles were being persecuted and yet they were defiant and they actually obeyed God and not people. So we have here that the apostles for teaching the message are actually put in prison. But God supernaturally releases them and allows them to teach. A couple of, couple of verses from this here. So, so uh, verse uh, 21, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. So as they had been told, God had told them to do this. And Peter says, that, verse 29, the classic, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. And there is a real release of the power of God that comes with that. Verse 32, we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So what the scripture is telling us here that if we obey God, we receive the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, supernatural things happen. It's all kind of linked up, isn't it? If, if, if we look at that. And it's a huge, it's a huge um, area. But there's something, when I was reflecting on a lot of this message about how does this all link in with loving God and love, loving people? You know, when, it, and we, when we compare our modern church to the early church, we, we have so many tools available to us now that those guys didn't have. You know, we've got spreadsheets, we've got PA systems, we've got all sorts of wonderful things. And like a lot of, like a lot of guys and girls, I'm sure, I love tools. I love going to B&Q and looking at shiny new tools. You know, I'm useless with them. I don't know how to use them. But sometimes I can get so obsessed with my, like my hammer. I've got this really cool hammer. But when I scuff it, it's like, oh, it hurts me, you know. But it's going to get scuffed. I've got, I've got to use it to, to hammer the nail in, yeah. But do we sometimes in churches, this church, other churches nowadays, because we've got all these wonderful tools in place, do we sometimes get more, is our focus more on the tool or is it on the job at hand sometimes? You know, when the job at hand is really to love God and love people, some of you may not like what I'm going to say here, but these chairs, which look great this morning, whoever set them up, good job. But if the chairs were out of alignment slightly, is it really a big deal to loving God and loving people? Because if you've got the chairs lined up beautifully and immaculately set up, 
but you didn't ask the person next to you how they were today, what, what's your priority? Is it the tool to organise the meeting or is it on loving God and loving people? If the banner outside is a little bit wonky, okay, you know, we should do things from, a, from a, an attitude of getting things right in excellence, but are we more concerned about that than we are about our fellow brother and sister in, in the meeting? Love God, love people. So have you got distracted sometimes by, by, by some of the tools? I know I certainly can, can get distracted by that. You know, like many of you, I'm sure I was watching Glastonbury last week. And I'm always a bit suspicious when I see these artists who come up and they've got loads of fanfare, loads of lights, loads of um, special effects, almost smoke and, and loads of musicians and dancers or whatever. But if you strip it back, Sting said this one time, he said, if you strip a song back or performance back to just one artist and one instrument, then you'll see, does that song have any weight? How good is that track? Or is it really being camouflaged by a lot of special effects? Have some churches become like that, where, where the message has become kind of forgotten in all of the organisation that goes around it sometimes, where we can take our focus off loving God and loving people if, we worry, if we're too worried about getting everything perfect. I mean, I think the church here was quite messy, probably, at the very beginning. Uh, I, I imagine it being quite chaotic. And you know, I'm not knocking these things. We need tools. We need organisation. We need these things to keep the modern church running. But as long as these things don't become the priority and we get obsessed with these things at, at the expense of loving God and loving people, I really felt God kind of was, was convicting me of that. So it comes down to, to, sort of, to passion and obedience and putting our, our faith into action and loving God. I think, I think this is where what we can really learn from the early church and the lifestyle that they were modeling where supernatural things were happening. And yeah, it was messy. And today we are so, so much better organized. You could, you could argue, but then have we lost something along the way by doing that? You know, like, like at the moment, I'm sure lots of you are watching Wimbledon. I love Wimbledon, one of, one of my highlights. But when you look at it, you know, if you look at the strawberries and cream, the pims and lemonade, you know, you've got the closing roof on centre court and all that stuff. What's the most important thing about the tournament? The tennis. But what's the most important thing about the tennis? If we're keeping it simple, getting back to basics, as Jonathan started last week, if we're going to keep it real simple, go back to ground zero, all it is is about is a ball and a racket. If it boils down to it, so, but of course, the other stuff's needed to make a tournament and, 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 and whatever. But again, if we focus on the other stuff, we've got to keep the focus on... on keep, there's a guy in China, a pastor I, I knew there, a guy called Joe. He always would say this, keep the main thing the main thing. And I think this is what the church needs to do. We need to keep the main thing the main thing, uh, whatever else we, we have. Uh, so in closing, really, I think what would be good for us to do is consider what does it mean for us to, to, to believe in God individually? What, is it, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? And how is my faith put into action? How do I do that? How do I, how do I practice my faith with passion? Now, passion doesn't always have to be loud. It doesn't always have to be something which everyone sees. It can be internal. It can be quiet but it's always something that's very tangible so how how am i how is my faith being put in action how am i displaying my passion for god in my life 
how am I obeying God? That's all linked. So before um, I invite Paul up to, um, to close us in a, in a bit more worship, I'd just like us all to just close our eyes and consider what does it mean to believe in God like these people in the, old, the early church did? They believed in God, but they put their faith in action. There was a hunger. There was an appetite. There was a passion to go and seek and receive from the Lord. And we know that the Lord is always waiting to hear from us. We know that. And these guys were obedient to God. Even in the face of persecution, they obeyed God. And there was a reward for that. Those who obey God receive the Holy Spirit, says it in the scripture. So let's just take a moment quietly to reflect on what that means for us. Lord, thank you that you never change. Thank you that we have complete assurance and confidence in who you are and in what your word says. Thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. Lord, we love you. We declare that you are our good, good father. And Lord, I know for myself, Lord, and maybe others here, Lord, I've sometimes lost my passion, Lord. I've sometimes been disobedient, many times disobedient, Lord. You know that. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to, and all of us, Lord, to refocus on the things that really matter, Lord, which is loving you and loving our brothers and sisters, Lord, as you command us to do. Love God, love people. I pray that we would never forget that, Lord, and that we would never make that a secondary thing, Lord, that we would keep that the main thing, Lord, as you have commanded us to do, Lord. We thank you for the gift of your, your Holy Spirit, Lord. We thank you that you are still at work, Lord. You are still performing miracles today, Lord. And I pray that we would see more of that in our lives, more of that in our churches, Lord, and that we would never lose sight of who you are and what you've done for us, Lord. So we give you glory today and every day. And we thank you, Lord, that you welcome us, Lord. You meet us, you meet us where we are. And we give you glory today in Jesus' name. Amen.